0: Happy day before Friday and welcome to Fearless with Jason Whitlock. I am Jason Whitlock. Awesome to be here today, uh, particularly after yesterday. I got to be honest. Uncle Jimmy's battle with COVID. Man, it took a turn yesterday and threw me for a loop. It was a wild day. I wrote about it uh, and I'm going to talk about it today on today's show. But I wrote about the events of yesterday with Uncle Jimmy and his battle with COVID and the lessons I learned and the embarrassing things that I did yesterday uh, trying to deal with the twists and turns with Uncle Jimmy's battle with COVID. But felt like I learned some lessons and I'm, I'm going to share them with you on this show. You can also go to The Blaze today and TheBlaze.com and read my column about what transpired with Uncle Jimmy. But just, just sit tight. I'm going to explain it to you here in a second. Uh, Steve Dace is going to join us to talk about COVID as well. You guys know that I believe Steve and his book, The Fossey and Bargain, uh, the book and Steve, two of the most important voices talking about uh, the COVID crisis. I think the rest of the media uh, is following Steve's lead on this. He's kind of the backbone and the foundation uh, for a lot of the discussion about COVID and Uh, our reaction to it and the government's reaction to it. Uh, So stick tight. Steve will be here, be with us in, I'd say, 20, 25 minutes. Uh, Before that, though, Greg Couch is going to join us here at the top of the show. He's written a very interesting column about Tim Tebow. Uh, He he also wrote a very uh, fascinating column about Naomi Osaka. We'll get to all of that, but we're going to start with me starting a fire. I didn't do that yesterday. I let Ted Nugent do all the fireworks yesterday. But today, I'm gonna start a fire, and I'm gonna talk about something you're not supposed to talk about. I don't like Megan Rapino. US women's soccer star Megan Rapino lives in a protected space created by social media's glorification of the BLM LGBTQ+, the Alphabet Mafia. Rapino is untouchable. She can't be criticized or questioned without fear of social media retribution. Her actions or motives are all assumed to be a to be pure and driven by a purpose much greater than your own. That's why most of the mainstream media summarily rejected and or ignored Hope Solo's recent critique of Rapino. On Monday, Solo, a former member of the US Women's National Soccer Team, Star goalie for the team once claimed that Rapino subtly forced other soccer players to kneel during the national anthem. Solo said Rapino almost bullied her teammates to support Colin Kaepernick's kneeling publicity stunt. Here's the audio from the pod- podcast where Solo made her allegations. Take a listen for yourself. But I think the kneeling thing can, can be very divisive. Um, I've seen Megan Rapinoe almost bully players into kneeling because she, she really wants to stand up for something in her particular way. Uh, the purple-haired Rapinoe is a darling of corporate media. She's engaged to WNBA star Sue Bird. In the sports world, they are the ultimate power couple, a symbol of LGBTQ perfection only a homophobe or a bigot would dare question the actions, motives and agenda of Megan Rapino. So few people do. And certainly no one who aspires to work in the corporate media space would even consider taking solo's allegations seriously. So few people did. Instead, the immediate reaction was to point out that Solo was booted off the U.S. women's national team months before Kaepernick and Rapino began kneeling during the fall of 2016. The inference being there was no way for Solo to know or see what Rapino did to win the support of her teammates. On Tuesday, USA Today published a story hammering this point. Yep, no way Solo has communicated with any of her former teammates over the last five years. Former teammates don't gossip and chat. I get that Solo said, I've seen. She's speaking loosely during an informal podcast interview. It's easy to misspeak or exaggerate in that setting. Beyond that, Anyone who has been following the Kaepernick controversy the last five years knows that many kneeling participants have been bullied. The threat has been clear: kneel or be labeled racist. That's bullying. You don't need all. You need is a brain to see that people and athletes have been bullied into kneeling. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones, he was bullied into kneeling. Jones is like a hundred 10-year-old billionaire. How much easier is it to bully a young athlete who lacks Jones's financial security? What percentage of NFL and NBA players do you think authentically believe in taking a knee during the national anthem? I'll, I'll wait, do the math. What percentage of NFL and NBA players do you think authentically took a knee during the national anthem? 2%, 3%, i will give you 15, but it damn sure ain't 100, it ain't 50. It was all a publicity stunt. The BLM LGBTQ plus alphabet mafia stuck a gun to everyone's head and made athletes offers they couldn't refuse. Everybody saw what happened to Saints quarterback Drew Brees when he offered tepid resistance. He was shot in the streets like he was Sonny Corleone in the original Godfather movie. We've created a world where the Alphabet Mafia members can't be questioned at all. But you know who can? Athletes like Tim Tebow can be ridiculed with impunity. ESPN, the self-proclaimed worldwide leader in sports, has spent the past decade Analyzing and criticizing Tebow's motives and actions, every one of them. The devout Christian knelt in prayer after big plays and touchdowns. He was the anti-Kaepernick long before Colin Kaepernick became a polarizing figure and household name. Tebow's cult of personality was much larger than his on-field performance warranted and a problem for his coaches to corral. He was a lot like Colin Kaepernick, except he was on the other side of the coin. When your cult of personality is bigger than your talent on the field, it's a problem for coaches. Kaepernick's NFL career flamed out nearly a decade ago. I'm sorry. (laughs) Not Kaepernick's. Tebow's NFL career flamed out nearly a decade ago. This year, Tebow and his former college coach, Urban Meyer, resuscitated the Heisman Trophy winner's football career. At 34 years old, Tebow signed a deal to be a backup tight end for the Jacksonville Jaguars. Both Tebow's and Meyer's motives were critiqued and questioned. ESPN's Stephen A. Smith accused Tebow and Meyer of exemplifying white privilege. Other broadcasters thought so little of Meyer's character that they claim Meyer would give Tebow a regular season roster spot, whether he deserved it or not. Just think that through. Urban Meyer reaches the top of his profession in college football. At Bowling Green, at the University of Florida, at Utah, and at Ohio State. You think he got there just giving away opportunities? You think he just did a bunch of favors for people and that's how he won everywhere? Is he really that low character? Is is it really that easy to win at the highest level? Is he that stupid? On Monday, Tim Tebow was among the first players across the league and by the Jaguars, first people cut by Urban Meyer and the Jaguars, the low character people that were just gonna hand Tim Tebow a job. Stephen so A. Smith again claimed white privilege benefited Tebow. Would any of this be said about Megan Rapino? She's white. If Tebow championed homosexuality, atheism, and the Black Lives Matter movement, would any ESPN broadcasters have the courage to criticize him? The U.S. women's soccer team turned in an embarrassing performance in the Tokyo Olympics, finishing in third place. It was supposed to be the dream team of women's soccer, arguably the most talented team ever assembled. Hope Solo strongly insinuated the team failed to win the gold medal because Rapinoe's agenda interfered with team chemistry. Listen for yourself. And I think that's really hard being on the main stage right now with so many political issues for athletes. There's a lot of pressure. And ultimately at the end of the day, our number one focus should and has always been to win first. Mm, did you hear that? Our number one focus should and should have always have been to win first. Did the U.S. women lose because they were focused on politics rather than competition? Did they lose because Carly Lloyd was plotting her NFL career as a kicker? Were they distracted? All of it's a fair question. It all makes sense. No country has spent more money on developing female soccer players than the United States. This goes all the way back to Title IX. This is a 60-year investment we have in women's soccer. We've invested more money in developing women's soccer players than any, than all the other countries combined. That's why they never lose until the Olympics, until the politics, and the agendas, and this, the typical things that tear pe- teams and people apart. Had this been the men's basketball team losing, the men's basketball team would have been pillory 24 hours a day for the rest of the year because they don't have the kind of triple alphabet mafia protection as Megan Rapino. She's female, she's gay, and she pretends to worship St. George Floyd. Now that's a fire. Let's roll out to Chicago. <laughs> And bring in Greg Couch to deal with this fire that I've started. Uh, I've walked you into a landmine, Greg, but I think you can handle it. You got your fire gear on, your helmet, your fire extinguishers. Uh, do you agree with me? We'll start here that the U.S. women's soccer team, their failure at the Olympics, They've gotten off easy. No one's questioning this team, their failure, bringing the bronze home. If that had been the men's basketball team, we'd still be ripping and shredding them and wondering what the hell's going on with men's uh, basketball. But the women's soccer team seems untouchable. Am am I right for for calling this out? Well,
1: yes. All of women's sports are untouchable in the U.S. I mean, we've put all that money into Title IX, and women's – American teams have dominated the Olympics for a long time and they should but the problem isn't whether they've got the money or the resources anymore it's you know can you criticize them when they fail. I think that they did fail because they're getting old actually for one thing but also this focus on the political justice stuff is social justice has become you know ridiculous and it doesn't surprise me at all what Hope Solo said I I believe every word she said okay you know, social justice started as something that was supposed to be helpful to people, a big hearted thing to help people who've had a you know, bad shake and a bad, you know, unable to, to uh, you know, have a fair shake and things. And instead, it's turned into something that's about bullying and intimidation. And it's just, you know, you, you have to do exactly what these people want you to do or else you're just a failure, you're a loser. There's zero critical thinking. It's, it's you're on my side or you're against me. There's zero critical thinking involved in this, and you need to actually think inside the margins a little bit. So it doesn't surprise me at all. I think Hope Solo is right on the money, and uh, the women's U.S. team deserve to lose, and they
0: should be criticized for it. The other thing that I bring up in my column is that I, I just juxtapose or contrast, compare Megan Rapino and how she's treated as a god, and we can't question anything about her, and, and, and as opposed to Tim Tebow, who we can question any and everything about Tim Tebow. You wrote a column earlier this week defending Tim Tebow and wondering why uh, people are still dead set on trashing this guy, as if he's some kind of low-character villain. Am I right for pointing out that there's some hypocrisy here in terms of you, you can't say a word about Megan Rapino, but my God, can we trash Tim Tebow? And his crime seems to be uh, publicly professing a love of Jesus Christ and, and trying hard when given an opportunity. Those seem to be his crimes. Look, it takes real
1: cynicism to hate on Tim Tebow, all right? He's been in a public spotlight for maybe 15 years, and everyone's waiting for him to mess up and screw up, but he never does, okay? All he's been is empathetic. He's, you know, built houses for poor people. He's been a good guy. He's stood up for his own beliefs. He's uh, picked himself up by his bootstraps. And like you just said, he believes in God openly. And somehow the social justice message has gotten to the point where believing in God... Is is a negative, okay? And all of those things that he stands for are a negative. It's because it started trying to defend people, the the social justice movement, and instead, it's morphed into something where everything those people do is a positive. No matter what someone does on the on their side, uh, you know, it's a positive. They're great. They're perfect. But if you're not on that side, you're on the Tim Tebow side. You're suspicious. There's something wrong with you. You know, you're you're in a cult. This is a very anti-religious statement that they're making about Tim Tebow. And the NFL is a strongly religious kind of, of thing. So Tim Tebow that we're hearing all the fact that they're this idea that he doesn't belong. He didn't deserve a shot in the first place. That's crap. Okay. All he's ever done is been a good person. He's proven that he can win on a football field. He's proven that he can break tackles. And he's a great person in the locker room. That's exactly what a team needs. And so when he played for the Broncos, you could see he couldn't throw a pass. He doesn't know what he's doing as far as the motion and the techniques of football, but how many times did they pull it out at the end of games? And it was because Tim Tebow stood there and he believed in a miracle. He believed it was gonna happen and all the players around him believed in it too. And I'd say that Urban Meyer already got a lot of value out of Tim Tebow because he's already proven what it takes to be a good human being in the locker room. I'm saying that Tebow has already set the course of what that locker room's like in Jacksonville. He's accomplished a lot. He deserved a shot in the first place. He got a fair look at, at the making the team, and it was a fair cut in the first place, and Tebow was grateful for the opportunity. So that's all that happened here. And the whole idea that he's a bad human being or that he stole someone else's spot or anything, is just a bunch of crap.
0: The other thing, Greg, and, and I think back to you and I both covering Bill Snyder's Kansas State football program. And you know how ruthless college football coaches have to be to compete at the highest level. And Urban Meyer has done that everywhere from Bowling Green to Utah, to Florida, to Ohio state. You have to be ruthless. And I'm listening to people suggest that, Oh yeah, Urban Meyer is just going to save a spot for Tim Tebow, whether he deserves it or not. And I'm like, what are these people? How do they think Urban Meyer became successful? just giving away opportunities and doing favors for people. The naivety that they have about Urban Meyer and, and, and how low obviously they think his character is, that shocked me.
1: Yeah, he's not just gonna give a spot to a gimmick on the team. The margin for victory in the NFL is slim, and Urban Meyer knows what it takes to win, and that's what he's out to do, to win. Again, he just gave a guy a shot, a guy who's proven he can break tackles, a guy who's a good person in the locker room. He gave him a shot to be the third-string tight end who would make a minimum salary in the NFL. I mean, come on. He didn't take anything away from any superstars. He, it's good to give a shot at some, something like that, okay? And the Jacksonville team had really sort of irked, pissed off, I guess, the, their own fan base by not taking Tebow in the first place in the draft, by not taking him when the Denver Broncos were looking to get rid of him. So he did sort of mend some fences there, Urban Meyer did. And, but he wasn't going to give Tebow anything that he didn't earn. So he got his shot. It didn't work out. Thank you for the opportunity, coach. And that was how it all, that's all that happened. So to look at Urban Meyer like he's done something wrong here, n- not at all. He's, he did the right
0: move. He did the right thing. All right, today... I I really liked your column about Naomi Osaka when I first saw the headline I was like Naomi Osaka and you know what am I what am I reading about what what's this about headline kind of catchy but once I dug into the story I thought you made an excellent point about what's going on with Osaka who's really manipulating her who's really exploiting her she keeps blaming the media but you say her actual enemies are actually someone else. Yeah, she needs to learn who her enemies are. Her enemies are her handlers.
1: They're the people who are putting way too much on her and trying to turn her into the next Muhammad Ali. You know, she's into black lives matter. She's the face of the Olympics. She's going to light the cauldron. She's in a swimsuit edition. She's doing, you know, she's doing mag- magazine covers and oh yeah, she's a tennis player too. Look, she's just a, a young woman who's being manipulated and handled by, by these marketing people. Yeah, you get $50 million and you're told you're the greatest thing in the world and you're going to be the face of the Olympics. You know, tell me that's things I'll probably, I'll probably jump too. But the problem is, you know, if you if you're referring to her press conference the other day, a reporter just asked her a simple question. He just said, you know, you, you make a lot of money on on social media and in media platforms. And now you don't seem to like press conferences. So how do you balance the two things when you have these two you know conflicting media ideas? And she started crying. I mean, she could barely answer the question. But in the middle of that, she couldn't answer and the moderator just said, do you want to change topics now? And she said, no, this is very interesting to me. I want to, I want to go ahead and talk about it. Well, what we heard a little bit later in the afternoon was her agent comes on Twitter and says, look at how that media guy was bullying her and intimidating her. And this is what's wrong with the media. It had nothing to do with it. She, the questions of Naomi Osaka are almost always really simple. Okay. Someone asked her yes, the other day about whether she felt proud of herself for having the courage to drop out of the French Open. I mean, it's preposterous that she thinks the media is beating (laughs) up on her, but I think this is all part of the game that's being played by her handlers, okay? They're convincing her, when you're falling to pieces like that, it's the media's fault. Let us take care of you. We're gonna give you the money, we're gonna make your platform the way it should be, and, and attack the media. And it's just, she's not prepared for what they're doing to her, okay? And so I used to be against her in a way because I thought, she was arrogant. And but I realize now this isn't really in her fault. She's being mani- manipulated. She's a strong young woman. And she needs to stand up to these people. She, she needs to learn who her enemies really are.
0: Greg, I'm going to tell you, this sounds a lot like a couple of weeks ago. I was driving home and the gravitational pull of my car took me through a McDonald's drive through. <laughs> I don't know if it was my GPS or whatever, but it just it just pulled me through a McDonald's drive-thru and I got to the window and and the the guy at the drive-thru window asked me a very tough question. <laughs> Did you want extra tartar sauce on your double filet of fish sandwich? And I nearly broke down in tears and was <laughs> I mean, that's a really tough question. Of course I want extra tartar sauce on my uh, double filet of fish sandwich. And please keep the extra cheese uh, coming as well. So it was a very difficult question. I wish that I'd had a handler that could have jumped in there and and fended off that question. But on, on a more serious note, Greg, you also went on to explain in your piece that What's going on with Osaka is actually the game that agents and handlers are running on all athletes. That they're all being perhaps pushed beyond their intellectual depth.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hate to say that because she's a grown woman and it sounds like I'm being, you know, anti women. But I mean, it happens to the men, too. And I think it's just these people, these athletes don't really know exactly what's happening for again. We've talked about some of this before. Okay, a lot of their athletes childhoods were taken from them. Okay, they've been turned into professional athletes when they were five years old and everything's been handled for them and they have no critical thinking skills and they don't know how to cope at all. So they get to be 20 years old. And now these marketers are coming at them with all this money and still things are being handled for them. They need to learn how to, how to you know, <laughs> cope for themselves, but no one's taught them that. The parents have just taken the childhood away from these kids, and so, yeah, I think this is something we see all the time. It's very common, and it just makes me feel sad, frankly, because you're looking at adults falling to pieces. Naomi Osaka is one of the great tennis players. She should be a Hall of Famer, and now I wonder whether her whole career
0: is already going down the drain. Greg? Thank you for the time. Appreciate it. Good stuff this week. Uh, I'm going to make a final point here off of uh, Greg's comments and and, and column. This is the point uh, that I've been hammering for forever and, and, and totally believe. We're just asking too much of young people. Think about yourself when you were 23. What did I know at 23? Did I have a sophisticated worldview? Were my opinions at 23 worthy of public consumption? My, my thoughts on some of the most complex issues of the day, were they really sophisticated enough to be elevated and told, oh my God, Jason Whitlock's point of view on this is really, really important all because I played football at Ball State or because I played football in the NFL or I can dunk a basketball in college or the pros, I'm now, LeBron James, I'm now an authority on race. And, and people get upset with me when I make the point as it relates to LeBron James because everyone loves, to, oh, he grew up in poverty. He can so relate. And, and I, I try to bring a realistic perspective and point of view as a journalist, based off of what I know about what happens with prodigy athletes when they show a physical gift at age five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. When you've lived the journalistic career that I've lived, and even my life as an athlete, because I grew up with Jeff George, who. Go check Wikipedia. Go check Google. Jeff George is as talented an athlete as America has ever produced. I didn't say he was the most talented. I didn't say he was more talented. But he has every bit as much talent as LeBron James had, as John Elway had, any athletes you can think of. Jeff George could have been a first-round pick and a shortstop in Major League Baseball. Jeff George was the number one overall pick in football. Jeff George could have played in the NBA as a sharpshooter like a Kyle Korver. This dude was just a phenomenal athlete. And I saw what that did to him in terms of just like how the world treats you at a very early age. It was in like fifth and sixth grade where we started saying, man, this dude's going to be the number one pick in the NFL draft. We started saying this in fifth and sixth grade. And everybody started treating him like, man, he's going to be the number one draft pick (laughs) and one of the biggest recruits and everything. That's how we started treating him as a kid. And, And I even take myself, who clearly... Didn't have Jeff George talent, but I know how I was treated as a young person because I was captain of our football team. And other than Jeff George, I was the most talented guy on our team. I know how I was treated. I was not developing my mind at the highest level. I was slurping up my privileged uh, lifestyle and how I was treated. I didn't have sophisticated thoughts on the world. And if, if the way I had was treated at, 18, at, at 17, 18 years old, if they had continued on into my 30s, and then you pile on a bunch of wealth on top of it, I'm just not qualified as a public intellectual. And we're forcing these athletes. LeBron James can barely craft a grammatically sound sentence. Barely. If it goes beyond C spot, run. I don't think he can craft a grammatically sound sentence, but we think he's a public intellectual. We need to stop this, it's comical. I suggest you go read Greg's column about Naomi Osaka because he just uses her as a, uh, a way to expound and point out like, well now we're asking some tennis player who's been a tennis prodigy since she was five, six years old. She spent most of her time on a tennis court, country club setting. And oh, now she's a voice for Black Lives Matter because she's half black and half Japanese, I believe. Now she's a spokesman on race. Stop it. It's comical. Let me talk, talk to you about a subject I am an expert on, good meat. Good food, good ranchers. These guys are truly fantastic. Good ranchers can safely deliver the best American craft beef and organic chicken right to your door. Same way they do my door. Their steak options are incredible. Their chicken breast options are all come individually wrapped and pre-seasoned in different flavors like lemon pepper and chipotle bourbon and their seafood options include salmon, trout, and my favorite, shrimp. Wouldn't believe that, would you? But I love shrimp. Your local grocery store can't compete with the flavor and taste you'll get from them. This is truly some of the best steak, chicken, and seafood I've had. Our new grill set should be here later today, and I can't wait to get it popping on the back barbecue grill. If you subscribe, you will get $20 off and free express shipping Get steakhouse quality for less than $5 per meal. Go to GoodRanchers.com Fearless to get $20 off and free express shipping, and you, too, can start eating like me. Are you looking at this weight I'm losing because I'm eating Good Ranchers? I'm eating healthy, good, lean meat bon- uh, raised right here in America. That's GoodRanchers.com Fearless. Welcome back. Yesterday, COVID one It wrecked my entire day, disturbing my faith that I will get through this pandemic emotionally unscarred and confidence unfazed. COVID shook my core on Wednesday. On my drive into work, I called to check on my podcast host, Uncle Jimmy, who contracted the virus 10 days ago. He and his two sons, James and Jamil, have been isolating at home. I called Jimmy three or four times per day. Yesterday morning, he sounded relatively strong. We agreed he was doing better than the day before. Jimmy told me, I don't feel like I'm gonna die. He kinda chuckled. We hung up the phone. I stepped out of my car, walked into our studio, sat at my desk, Popped open my laptop and then my phone rang. Jimmy Dodds flashed on my cell phone screen. His oldest son's voice greeted me when I answered. Hey, Mr. Whitlock, dad fainted and landed face first. He's laying on the floor, coughing and gagging. He wants you to come here and take him to the hospital. I nearly fainted. I'm not joking. I nearly fainted. I felt helpless. I felt emasculated. I was scared. Trying to calm my nerves and regather the fearless pose I wear every day. I briefly closed my eyes. I'm 54, I'm overweight, I'm scared of COVID. I couldn't think of a way to help my closest friend. I thought of myself. And then I thought of all the people, not named Uncle Jimmy, who depend on me. I panicked. I stood up, walked in the room where our show's producers work, and wondered which one of them to sacrifice in pursuit of saving Jimmy. I told them what had happened. We agreed we should call an ambulance. I returned to my office and plotted my next move. Should I leave work and go to the hospital? Well, hold on, which hospital would they take him to? Would they even let me inside the hospital given the COVID restrictions? I decided to continue work. I felt useless to help. In this most divided time, when we absolutely need each other the most, nothing separates us more than COVID. We're afraid to help each other vaccinated people don't like the unvaccinated. COVID is the most insidious form of cancel culture. We're canceling out each other. Uncle Jimmy and his two boys followed me to Los Angeles to work on my television show, Speak for Yourself. That was like three years ago. I abruptly left corporate media and California in search of creative autonomy and an environment that would more easily allow me to live out my faith-based worldview. I moved to Nashville a year ago, leaving Jimmy and his boys behind to fend for themselves. Eight months later, they moved here to help me start the Fearless Project with Blaze Media. As the kids say, Uncle Jimmy is my day one my ride or die best friend. COVID knocked him to his knees and all I could do was tape an interview with rocker turned political partisan, Ted Nugent and former Fox News host, Bill O'Reilly. I felt awful. As soon as I was done, Jimmy Dodds flashed on my cell phone again. Uncle Jimmy's voice greeted me this time when I answered. Can you, can you come get me and drive me from home from the hospital. I closed my eyes again. I thought about being 54, overweight and scared. I once again thought about all the people not named Uncle Jimmy who depend on me. I panicked again. I stood up, walked into the room where my producers work and asked our 33 year old 160 pound producer Corey if he would pick Jimmy up from the hospital. I'm not lying and I'm not proud. Corey looked at me as if I'd asked him to catch a fart with his bare teeth. His eyes bugged out. (laughs) His expression sobered me. I returned to my office, called Jimmy. Jimmy, uh, how far is the walk home? Aren't you close? COVID won. I lost. I'm a loser. I'm scared. It's me keeping it all the way real about what happened with me and Uncle Jimmy yesterday. Uh, We're going to roll out to Iowa and bring in the number one expert on COVID to get his evaluation of how I handled yesterday's ordeal, Uh, but also to talk about COVID. There's nobody uh, more smarter than Steve Dace on this topic. His book, The Falsy and Bargain, is the blueprint that I believe all the rest of the media is working off of when discussing COVID. Steve, uh, let's start here. Give me an approval rating. We end our shows with an approval rating. Do you approve, disapprove? How, how do you judge my behavior yesterday when faced with a COVID crisis? Brother, I got I to
2: gotta go... Commodus in the arena, gladiator style. You know I love you, brother. <laughs> That's why I gotta go thumbs down. I gotta keep it real, man, all right? It's The show's called Fearless, I Gotta Go Thumbs Down, and here, here's why, okay? We're gonna get in all kinds of data and science here. We're gonna get all science-y here in a few minutes, but for a second, let's just talk uh, brother to brother here spiritually. Everything I heard from you, now, that doesn't mean you made the wrong decisions, okay? But I think in a Christian worldview, we are judged by motivations, not results, all right? I mean, you know, di- dictators can make the trains run on time, my friend, okay? Um, we can create a welfare state because we're trying to feed the hungry and wreck our economy with trillions of debt and then say, don't judge me by my good intentions. Intentions and results aren't the issue in the biblical worldview. In the Christian worldview, it's about motivations. Choose this day whom you will serve. There was a lot of fear in your voice, a lot, a lot of fear in your explanation process. You know, now, prudence might have called for you to maybe make some of the same decisions. But it was seeing a guy with your gravitas instantly put back on his heels, instantly caught um, without any short footing in the ground, shrinking beneath his feet. You and I both know when guys like us, when that happens to us, it's because we're not prepped, man, and and we're caught, uh, we're caught in fear, and so you know this whole perfect love cast out all fear thing. You and I were just talking the other day about so many scared things in the secular worldview that end up ruining societies out of a fear of death. We're all going sometime, right? I guess I mean you could end up dying out in a toilet like Elvis, or you could you could go because you gave you did a solid for your ride or die. I don't know. According to the dude code, I'd rather go the latter. Okay, if it was me, you know. But I think that's the issue here: is that there wasn't a lot of certainty in your decision-making process. So maybe I can bring you some data here the next few minutes that can help you with that.
0: Uh, Okay, now that you've taken me to the woodshed, and I'm glad you did, uh, I I do want to just add a little bit of clarifying information, or just. Things you may have overlooked in your in your taking me to the woodshed. I just got off the phone with the dude. Stepped out of my car, walked into my office, and the next thing I hear is his son in a shaken voice, "Mr. Whitlock, Dad just fainted and planted his face first. He's coughing and uh, gagging on the ground. He wants you to call an ambulance." (laughs) I don't have kids, Steve. You got kids. You probably get calls like that all the time. I don't. don't, There aren't little boo-boo. Any little boo-boo that happens with me happens to me, and I deal with it. Here I'm like, oh, my God, my best friend just dived headfirst into the ground. He's dying in front of his kids, and they want me to come fix this. I don't know what, I, any, so that's my excuse. I'm covering myself with that fig leaf. Had I been, had I, had there been a 30 minute, an hour gap between sure. talking to the dude one minute and then in, 60 seconds later, he's face first in the ground choking and gagging and coughing for his life, you know, you're making me defensive, Steve.
2: No, the first one, you, you, you handled the first one just fine. I'm more talking about when when he called you himself and said, hey, they're going to let me come home. Can you come and get me? I was more talking about the second one than the first part. Absolutely. Gotcha. In, the, in the first situation, you guys should have called an ambulance uh, in that case without question. You bet.
0: Uh, OK, well, listen, <laughs> here's Corey, 33 years old, the picture of health at one hundred and sixty pounds. He wants to send me to go get a man with COVID. He Corey wouldn't have the job without me. I Corey grew up in my neighborhood, went to my high school. I'm, hey, bro, you owe me. Go get Uncle Jimmy. You can handle this. I can't. I mean, come. How about how about Corey? How, doesn't he deserve a little criticism?
2: Or he Corey could have said, I, I frankly expected a better example from my elders, but sure, you bet. Okay, I'll go with that. Sure. All
0: right. All right, well, and let's move to your area of expertise. Evaluating me is not your area of expertise. Uh, (laughs) Let's move to a a bigger point made in the column that I want you, that COVID is dividing us, Mm -hmm. and I think you believe it should be bringing us together.
2: This is really the first opportunity um, we have had collectively as a culture, uh, Jason, for shared sacrifice. I mean, if you go back to, to 9-11, you know, you remember those days. Football was canceled for a week. Stadiums were full the very next week. It was more annoying to fly. Other than that, everything was pretty much the same. In fact, they went out of their way to tell us. If you didn't immediately go right back to, uh, you know, your capitalistic uh, Western lives of comfort, then the terrorist won. So unless you had a loved one or you yourself were serving in Iraq or Afghanistan year, after year after year after year, you really didn't feel the sacrifice of the war on Islamic terrorism. Uh, if you were, if, if you know, if you were white and you lived in Indiana or Montana, you really didn't feel the shared sacrifice of the battles of the civil rights movement in the in the fifties and the sixties. So I would argue, since Pearl Harbor, this is the first time that we have collectively, as a culture, had a moment were required for us to come together in shared sacrifice in order to overcome this. And instead what's happening is it's tearing us apart. And I think it's because we haven't, well one, we were already being torn apart before this arrived, number one. But, but so this has just made it worse. But number two, there's this notion out there that there's a riskless proposition, that there's a riskless road to travel to not get exposed to this thing. And you know, once a virus is airborne, which this is, there is no riskless path. That's why your masks don't work, by the way, because they don't stop airborne contagions. That's why you haven't been wearing one all your life during flu season. The reality is everyone here, everyone, there's 330 million people living in this country, Jason, and every single one of them is taking a risk. We don't know uh, what the dangers of even an asymptomatic exposure are to a virus of at best questionable origins And I believe more likely malevolent origins. We don't know what this does for 20 to 30 years to the body. We don't know. Here's the other thing we don't know. For the first time ever, I know when people hear the word vaccine, you think of an immunization. That's not what these current injections are. They are therapeutics like a flu vaccine. They They are meant to mitigate against severe symptoms and death. But they're losing massive efficacy in real time. The Biden administration wants people to take a third booster just eight months after the rollout. The New York Times finally came forward and reported today what I've been telling my audience for the last six weeks. The data in Israel that one of the most vaccinated nations in the, in the world, over 70 percent of Israelis, Jason, over the age of 12 are fully vaccinated. Right now, fully vaccinated represent 59 percent of the hospitalizations in Israel, according to their own data. The Pfizer vaccines efficacy is failing in real time as we speak right now in Israel. And, and so that doesn't even count the fact we've never injected this MRNA technology into people before. It's not the same as a traditional vaccine where you take a benign or inert sample of the virus and introduce it to the body. This spike protein spreads all over your body, not just in the arm where it's injected. And now we're going to inject people two times, three times. If you need a third booster, I'll bet you by the time next flu and cold season is over next winter, you're going to need a fourth. See, everyone here is taking a risk, Jason, and it's a risk we had nothing to do with. China did this to us. Maybe some people in our own medical establishment were experimenting over there and helped them, we'll find out. But the average american regardless of how they voted in the last election or if they voted at all had nothing to do with what is being done to us all of us are being put in this position right now where we're all going to take a risk either chance a a virus that we don't know where it really its true origins are or vaccines that we don't truly know their long-term side effects for either and you would think that that shared risk jason would bring us all together And instead, it's not. And if and if you don't follow the same risk pattern that I do, you're unevolved. You're a terrible person. You're causing everything that's to go wrong in society. And it's it's frankly sad to watch. And I think it's emblematic of the fact that if something like this uh, in Alamo moment doesn't put everybody back to back and say, all right, man, it's just us against the world, then probably that spirit simply cannot return to this culture in its current form.
0: I'm not going to add anything because I don't want to waste any of Steve's time. He's doing us a favor. Steve is the smartest guy I know in the media talking about this topic of COVID. I want to make the most of it while we have him. You tweeted a comparison, Steve, of COVID stats from last August to this August as it relates to deaths. And what do those stats say and what do they tell us?
2: So eventually our death curve has caught up with the explosion of cases, Jason. We've had like a two to three hundred percent explosion of cases here in the last month in the country. Uh, And and now the death curve is catching up. Yesterday was the first time since uh, 132 days ago that we were over one thousand deaths with COVID in America. With not from. That's a a key word there. Make sure we have the right preposition. With. And, um, and and now, yesterday, we broke that streak. So I went back and I looked at August 18th of 2020. And what I found was that deaths in August 18th of 2020 were about 1,350. They were about 1,000, I think, in 50 yesterday. Um, and if you, if, so if you do the odds, that would make COVID the seventh most likely way to die in America, slightly ahead of diabetes. So last year at this time, we did not have any treatment guidelines. Um, we, CDC did not provide any treatment guidelines for COVID until October. Remember, that was very controversial. Does hydroxychloroquine work? Does ivermectin work, et cetera? So for eight months, we just told people if you test positive, isolate for 10 to 14 days. If you don't show any symptoms, get a negative test, you can come back to life. If you do and you start showing symptoms, just stay home until you can't breathe and then come to the ER. We'll put you on a ventilator because apparently we're out of leeches. That's what we did in this damn country for eight months last year, as if we had no idea how to treat a respiratory virus. We did that for eight months and we had no vaccines. And you look at the death rate in America, your chances of dying with COVID on august eighteenth, two thousand and twenty were point zero zero four percent. Your chances of dying with COVID today in America with vaccines and with some treatments, point zero zero three percent. All right. Now that doesn't see what's happened here is we have conflated the the population question with your personal prognosis and lifestyle choices. Our our colleague here at The Blaze, Glenn Beck, has autoimmune disease. He ended up quarantining most of last year from the office in Dallas. He did his show from home most of last year. He was wise to do that. One of our other colleagues, Rob, is diabetic. He did the same for quite a long time. He was wise to do that. But see, these are decisions that can be made in consultation with you and a doctor, your place of work, etc. Instead, we have gone hammer meets nail. We've done all these ham fisted mitigation efforts that, uh, you know, six feet of separation which came out of some college student's paper that there was no actual methodology for, no science for. We just decided last June that masks work, even though we knew for 35 years they don't and all the real-time data shows us today, right now, they don't, every place with a mask mandate or low mask usage has all the same problems that every place that has the high ones do. We We just lost our minds. And I think it was because this idea that government creates utopia that we can create not just equality of opportunities and that's what you do when you want to when you want to govern people individually based on their particular situation but instead an in equality of outcomes and that's where it, it's a one size fits all paint by numbers everybody's treated the same uh and and that's disastrous in any form of government and it was it's been a disaster for covid policy and it's also created even more division in the country as well imagine from the beginning if they would have said stuff to us like this Hey, we have this virus. We don't know really if the Chinese are telling us the truth or not. We don't really know how it operates. We got to study this thing in real time. We ask you to work with us. We're going to go Swiss cheese at this thing. We're going to we're going to throw every anti-parasitic we've got on the market at it. We're going to throw masks at it, even though in the past they haven't worked. We're going to try it. Maybe maybe if we just throw enough layers of resistance against this, we can mitigate its devastation to our way of life. If you guys work with us, we'll be honest with you about the data that we have in real time. They didn't do any of that. They never treated us like adults from the beginning. from the very beginning, Fauci admitted he lied that he gave us advice based on what he wanted us to do, not what was actually true. And, and this has created, I think, irrevocable distrust with the current quote-unquote experts. And now we're in a situation where if, if you go, and now you can get people from Harvard, Yale. Go get Harvey Risch at Yale. Go get Martin Koldorf at Harvard, who's a friggin' socialist. And, but he's a skeptic of COVID mitigation policy. And now these guys, you know, you, you, now it used to be trust the experts. Now it's trust our experts. If you get the wrong guys at Harvard, Yale, and Stanford, you get you get scott atlas at stanford instead of some lefty in the in the academic department then you get you get banned off of social media this thing has become just nothing other than a partisan wedge and tool and it's made everything worse and now now you're seeing school boards are powder kegs now and you're you're seeing this at school board meetings across the country
0: so and this is obviously just speculation on your part, but you've given us a lot of thought. What, what has been the driving motivation behind our handling of COVID? There are those that say, well, it was we've exploited it so that we can have mail-in ballots and get the election results we want. Uh, but I'm not sure if that's true, but I'm trying to figure out is, is, and then I've heard people, and I think Tucker Carlson and perhaps yourself, have said, like like most things, the cover-up is always worse than the crime. And everybody's just been trying to save face and trying to—Fauci and other people are trying to CYA their own situations because they the gain-of-function deal and all the other things— Uh, that that it's all just a cover-up right now driving our reaction to COVID. If you could, what do you think has been, what was motivating our actions during the Trump administration and what's motivating our actions as it relates to the Biden administration?
2: I think it's a lot of the same things because I think you have one singular figure that was at the focal point of both of those efforts. You used a key phrase there, gain of function, and there has been a lot of discussion about gain of function, but keep in mind, gain of function is a methodology of research. It really comes down to, for example, I could argue that testing an atom bomb on Bikini Island was a form of gain-of-function research. We wanted to see how it behaved in a, in a desolate area to get an idea of what it might do if we dropped it in a populist one. Um, if we were specifically, though, attempting to figure out what radiation poisoning does to people, so we specifically put people in the blast radius of the atom bomb, if you see where I'm going with this, Jason, okay? That gain of function in and of itself as a process is reckless. This is why scientists at Johns Hopkins and and Rutgers University went to the Obama administration at the time and, and tried to get them to stop NIH and Fauci from doing this research, and the Obama administration did. And then sometime in 2017, after the changeover to Trump, that policy was changed. We don't really know how or why they began doing it again. We don't really know. But it's not just that they were doing gain-of-function research. They were specifically attempting to to measure something called spillover potential, Jason. And what they meant by that is what causes these viruses to spill over from an animal to a human, meaning that they had to conduct a certain type of -of gain-of-function research that opened the door for the kind of leak or incident that would cause the exact circumstance we're under right now and in my opinion that is the absolute most innocent of explanations and i doubt that it gives anybody a warm fuzzy at all what i really believe has gone down here is that some of our scientists in accordance with china were conducting research in wuhan to try to create a preemptive vaccine to the next mers or sars virus when they had sars 1 20 years ago they spent over a decade trying to come up with a vaccine for it they could not And eventually efforts were abandoned and the virus just burnt itself out and went away. I think they were attempting to come up with now maybe China had some different motivations because the head of the Wuhan Institute of Virology was also a former head of China's bioweapons program. That is a fact. So maybe China had different motivations. Our people, I think, went in there naively thinking China's our friend. They're our buddy. We share we're shared superpowers. Hell, they own half of America's debt. We'll come we'll work together to come up with the preemptive SARS or MERS vaccine. And I think out of those efforts, they created something that is rapidly mutating against their own vaccination efforts, as Robert Malone, the guy who originally patented mRNA technology, told me on my show a couple of weeks ago. I think from Fauci's perspective, everything that he has done, I don't think it's about fame. I see people on the right say this. Jason, this guy was already very famous. He was already been fed it all over the world for his work on HIV, AIDS. He was buddies with Elton John, royalty. I, I don't think it's about that at all. Uh, I, I really think that he has been trying to cover his tracks about the true origin of the virus and the hand that his particular organization had in it. And therefore, we're uncertain about what natural laws of immunology and virology it is actually beholden to compared to other viruses. I think that explains his double-mindedness. I think that explains why he often argues fallacies. And then I think behind the scenes, there has been a spirit of the age, um, that I call it, that has been waiting for an opportunity to take down what is left of Western civilization or what we we used to call in a pre-secular society, Christendom. And it sees that this is the moment to introduce a quote unquote great reset of how the West has conducted its personal and civic affairs for several centuries now. And it's never letting this crisis go to waste. So I think those two impulses are what have been driving this train all along. Mix it together with our current cultural conditions, uh, uh, you know, a huge fear of death massive political division more godlessness therefore we put our faith in the state instead and you create this sort of booyah base in a cauldron that is the perfect moment for what we have seen transpire over these last 17 months
0: steve i don't are you a big pop culture guy do you watch the popular tv shows uh, Game that's of, much the more all the time stuff i am a
2: big pop culture guy sure
0: Game of Thrones, I think about yeah. all the time. And yeah. I think about the character Littlefinger. And I, I really do. I think about his comment that chaos is a ladder. Mm-hmm. and and i I think a lot of times the puppet masters use popular culture to prepare our minds for <laughs> what they have in store for us. and And I think of Littlefinger talking about chaos as a ladder, and then I think how woke. That show was, and how Khaleesi and the women, the empowerment of women is going to save the world, and she's our hero. And and so that that's you know people say you said it today that uh, uh, no crisis you don't let it to go to waste, but you also don't let this kind of chaos go to waste. And and I really do believe. That, that Game of Thrones was trying to speak to us. It was the most popular show on TV. We were all watching it. And and now I think we're all living it. Uh, because I, I thought the show was a incredible explanation of what human beings will do in pursuit of power. And there's nothing they won't do. When Stannis Baratheon burned his daughter at the stake, I was like, that explains it all. There's nothing human beings, particularly godless human beings, won't do in pursuit of power. You know, I think people should rewatch the first five seasons don't Don't watch the last two or three seasons of Game of Thrones, but rewatch the first three or four seasons of Game of Thrones, and it explains everything I, I think we're living through right now. Am I silly for suggesting that?
2: No, not at all. Uh, you know. Art imitates life. Life imitates art. History doesn't just repeat, Jason. It also rhymes. I mean, there there's no Third Reich without a Weimar Republic. There's no Soviet Union without the the dysfunctionality of the Romanovs. So, I mean, despotism, ty- ty- tyranny needs a window. It needs an opportunity, and and the window and opportunity is chaos. When the existing system can no longer be trusted. to to meet people's needs for for security. And, And notice I did not say liberty. We have shown as a species, we will gladly trade liberty for security over and over and over again. That's what makes the American experiment so unique is that we were the first real collective society outside of Old Testament Israel. That was a direct theocracy called by God through Moses. Outside of that, this is the first opportunity in human history where collectively humans got together and said, we're gonna reject that paradigm that leads to some form of tyranny every single time. And we're instead going to put the emphasis on liberty over security. And it gave birth to, I would argue, the greatest civilization since the heights of Solomon in Old Testament Israel that this world has ever known. And now what you're saying is the more faithless we are, the more faith we put in our government and the more we abandon liberty in order to get that government to provide us that security we crave.
0: We'll end here sticking with Game of Thrones. Let's pretend that you're George R.R. R. Martin. Uh, he can't seem to write an ending to Game of Thrones. <laughs> I would like your prediction on how does this end? How does the COVID thing what's your prediction on where we end up five years from now
2: it will absolutely not end because there is no place for us all to go there's no walter cronkite over tv dinners at six o'clock there's no government entity or agency or figure that could stand up and tell us all clear back to everything normal that everyone would agree that person is trustworthy therefore this is only this is going this is now a game of wrestling which is a game of leverage all right. And leverage comes from in the in the sake of who is what, what's more likely to happen, that people will continue in mass to comply or that people will begin in mass to defy. All right. Leverage is going to be applied here on the pain it causes that one side is willing to pay to do something about it. Ultimately, this all isn't going to end. And bar, barring some kind of Jonas Salkian level vaccination miracle, like a polio level vaccine, barring something like that, This will not end until the people make it end and not a moment sooner. The forces behind this are not going to stop. Last week, the president of the United States, through his administration, threw out the idea of of banning interstate travel. Okay, we're literally saying in New York City right now, where one out of four people are black. One out of four blacks are vaccinated. We literally just brought segregation back to New York City and are telling people, show us your papers. They're not gonna stop. We have to make it stop. We have to practice mass civil disobedience and mass defiance so that the pain of imposing this on us is harsher than the pain that we are right now paying for being imposed. Until that math and calculus changes, then this, then the the mitigations will continue until morale improves.
0: And Steve, that's a perfect ending. Because you just explained, when Jimmy called me asking for me to come pick him up, I defied his request because I wanted this thing to end. It was very heroic what I was doing. If anything, you're a victim, brother. If anything, you're a
2: victim. Yes. Yes.
0: Give me liberty or give me death is basically what I said to Jimmy when he called. And I said, Corey, go get him. So that was my (laughs) heroic moment. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate you. Jimmy appreciates you coming in and helping us fill the gap as he tries to recover from COVID. All right, roll that tomorrow music, because I want freedom. I want the freedom to end this show today. We'll be back tomorrow. Uh, I'll have a new update on Uncle Jimmy. I'm still trying to recover from Steve trashing me on how I handled Jimmy's situation. I think Corey looks a lot worse. If I was 33 and 160 pounds, I would have carried Jimmy home. I would have walked to the hospital, put him on his back and carried him home like he was a Vietnam veteran stuck in a paddy field, injured. I'm an old man, what do they expect me to do? We'll see you tomorrow. I just fall. I want a beat I just fall. I want a beat I just fall. I wanna beat I just fall
1: the white sign looking like a-